0: In just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there, and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time but had such a large impact and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Pass Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Pass Gas. On May 13, 2005, Michael Enriquez, a father of four from Deltona, Florida, was driving down I-4 on his way home from work when the rear left tire on his 1993 Ford Explorer suddenly shredded inside the wheel well. At 65 miles per hour, Michael's SUV was sent skidding through lanes of traffic and into the median. The truck then flipped and slammed head-on into an infinity driven by 56-year-old Douglas George Gibson from Orlando. Enriquez was paralyzed from the neck down. Gibson was even more unlucky. Four days after the accident, he died from his injuries. Tragically, this was all due to a single recalled tire, a tire that had spent a decade bolted onto Michael's Ford Explorer. The tragedy was one of many, hundreds in fact, that piled up to lead to one of the greatest scandals in car history, that of Ford and Firestone. The shredded tires, lawsuits, finger pointing, and more than 250 fatalities would also threaten to destroy one of the oldest partnerships in automotive history. Some of the great buddy movies of all time involve a serious falling out, but they don't typically involve hundreds of deaths and thousands of injuries. How did a strike at a tire factory in Decatur, Illinois, or a car like the Bronco 2 destroy a business relationship that became bloody? Did you know that Ford's current CEO is the great-grandson of both Harvey Firestone and Henry Ford? Today on Pass Gas, the troubled legacy of Ford and Firestone, and how a handful of cutting corners, quality control disasters, and a lack of oversight shredded a 100-year-old relationship.
0: This is a tire issue, and only a tire issue.
2: I can't believe that Harvey Firestone and Henry Ford had sex. (laughs) and then managed to have a baby pretty amazing and then that baby's grandson became the ceo of ford
3: well what happened was they cloned both of them henry ford and harvey firestone but uh-huh. made made the clones female and then they cross-pollinated oh, and right. then and then just kept the bloodline pure for about you know 80 mm-hmm.
2: 90 years yeah that makes more sense yeah that makes more sense i thought they okay. 69 <laughs> i mean they probably did to get the sample yeah just like they, legos i think they had a 69 and then they got the sample and then they used that to get the <laughs> the
3: clones.
1: clones yeah all right <laughs> starting this episode off on a very weird note uh i <laughs> welcome to pass gas everyone I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by Joe Weber. Uh what's up, Wing
3: Wing Nation? I'm here for y'all.
1: And James Pumphrey.
3: Uh feeling weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I I this is not a like a Yeah,
1: you know, it is not an episode that you would start saying that Harvey Firestone and Henry Ford sixty nine. You're right, Joe. <laughs> that would be a weird thing to do to riff on that after we talked about hundreds of people losing their lives after a corporate malfeasance that would be a weird thing to do to start the episode we like to keep it light here on the podcast um i
3: thought about this script yesterday when i realized how
1: little tread i had on
3: my tires (laughs) Um, yeah
1: okay so this is probably something i want to reiterate at the end of the podcast but we'll get it out of the way now check your tires um, make sure they have a tread on them inspect them regularly also pay attention to any recalls that might apply to your vehicle like this this is imperative um it's some something as simple as a, a 10 cent part on your car can can help save your life so if there are yeah. any recalls we're getting this out of the way at the top uh any recalls on your car please take care of them that's all i ask from you
3: I'm coming to the end of my Subaru lease. And in the three years that I've had it, there have been maybe 12 recalls that I've had Oof. to go back and like fix a gas light or fix the entertainment center or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's Really annoying. Uh, but I, I, I like that they like reach out to me and say, you, you got to come in. Yeah.
1: My, the Mustang was uh, subject to the Takata airbag recall. Um, oh. Anyway, took care of that. 'Cause uh I didn't wanna I didn't wanna crash and then have like someone riding with me die because I ignored a recall, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I only drive Volkswagens. So uh, and they've never done anything weird or shady. As <laughs> yeah. of
1: them, so So anyway, yeah, we're talking about the the uh the Firestone recall of the late nineties, early two thousands today. Uh this was huge news uh at the time. I remember this being like, I remember being, like, first grade or something like that and just seeing this on the news every night for, like, a year. Yeah. Yeah, this is, day. like,
2: a—this is a huge deal. Like, Firestone and Ford have been in business together since the Model T, and uh, Ford kind of did Firestone dirty on this. And it, like, ruined the relationship, and it ruined, like, two huge families' uh, relationship.
3: And now Henry Ford III has to go to two different Christmases
2: yeah i mean like these these guys uh tried to start a new civilization in brazil and that
1: didn't split them up but this did it's true if you want to hear more about that check out our episode on fordlandia episodes plural yeah and also we can't forget that uh a lot of people lost their lives that didn't have to so let's keep that in mind as we dive in let's begin Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone met in 1897 when they shook hands over Ford's purchase of a set of tires for his first car. The relationship blossomed from there. A few years later, in 1906, they signed a deal for what was at the time the largest contract tire deal in the world, 2,000 tires for $55. Seems like a deal. From the turn of the 20th century until 1918, the Ford and Firestone relationship continued to grow, oftentimes beyond business, guys. For example, when Henry Ford ran for U.S. Senate in 1918, prompted to do so by President Woodrow Wilson, Harvey Firestone organized uh, Ford's campaign and oversaw its operations. When Ford ultimately lost the Senate race by only 7,500 votes to Truman Handy Newberry.
3: (laughs) That's the most 1913 name ever.
1: uh, Ford hired more than 40 private investigators to search out the fraud he was positive had occurred. The private dicks were led by Bernard Robinson, a lawyer at Firestone's Tire Company. The 40 men surveilled Newberry's friends and even seduced witnesses they produced a two-inch-thick dossier titled Report of the Private Investigation of U.S. Senatorial Primary and Election in Michigan in 1918. Ford's head lawyer took it to Washington, where he told President Wilson's Department of Justice that they owed it to his boss to take Newberry down. Robinson's friend, uh, that's the the Firestone lawyer, Bernard Robinson, uh, his friend Frank Daly, oversaw the investigation that would end up charging more than 100 people with wrongdoing, and prompted a recount that resulted in Newberry still winning the election. But Daley charged Newberry with violating the Federal Corrupt Practices Act, which barred senatorial candidates from spending more than $10,000 during their campaign. Newberry had spent at least $100,000 during the Republican primary, which, and would be tried and convicted in 1921, and he would eventually resign. Newberry was succeeded by James J. Cousins, a former employee of Henry Ford. Bunch of babies. (laughs) Same different decade, really. Uh, Yeah. Henry Ford was a total freak. Um, (laughs) This guy was vindictive. He held a grudge. He also ate grass because he believed it was healthier than anything else.
3: Oh, my God.
1: He changed the world, definitely. But just because you do that doesn't mean that you can't also be an insane person that should be more critically reflected on.
3: And he had the advantage of not being around when Twitter was around. So that people thought, you know, just took him at his like surface level. He's a CEO. He he made this company. He must be really smart. But there's so much, you know, like that didn't make it to the newspapers that he's just...
1: Yeah, kind of. I'm sure that he didn't advertise the fact that he ate grass, uh, or that he believed some very racist things as well. Um,
2: oh, you mean like, yeah, starting a newspaper to spread anti-Semitic propaganda?
1: Oh yeah, that too. He did that. That's for yeah. sure.
2: Anyway, I also heard that he like only ate poop too.
1: That's <laughs> that's not true. That's yeah, not but true. we should start that rumor. No, then. you don't say stuff just because it's funny. Uh that's yes, why I we do. say stuff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know, I do. You know, that's all I, I don't do. do that. That's my job. <laughs> There's enough bad stuff about Henry Ford on its own, you don't need to make up other bad stuff, is what I'm, I'm saying. I all I'm saying is that I've heard No, 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 we're not I've gonna do this, Henry James. Ford we're not gonna who? do this. <laughs> um
3: did I trigger who?
2: you? You're welcome. Now <laughs> I've got your attention. Beyond campaigning, Ford and Firestone also had a long weird history of camping together. Hmm. From 1918 until 1924, the two, alongside inventor Thomas Edison and naturalist John Burroughs, dubbed themselves the Vagabonds uh. and drove a fleet of Ford's. <laughs> Dude, just a bunch of like super rich guys being like, we're a bunch of hobos, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go sleep outside together in 69, probably. Uh, They drove a fleet of Ford's cars out to shallow falls in rural. I just want to make it clear. Like if you like 69, that's cool. That's That's, fine. It feels good. Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Joe loves the 69. Uh, I'm not like making fun of him. I'm not bringing it up as a slight. I'm just saying it's well documented that Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone like the 69 uh, each other. I've read a seven-inch book about it. <laughs> <laughs> they would drive a fleet of Ford's cars out to Swallow Falls in rural Garrett County, Maryland. The men formed a <laughs> quote think tank, which I think is all of them 60 ing together. That's what's called a think tank, like a um, a square of sixty-nines. Uh, and they would it's discuss the most stable of the sixty-nine structures. <laughs> Oh, so uh, you guys want to set up camp and then do the think tank or you want to do a quick think tank and and then like set up camp? I don't know. It's getting kind of cold. I'd like to get a fire before we start think tanking each other. (laughs) While they're think tanking each other super hard, they would discuss their inventions and ideas uh, away from the critics in the big city. (laughs) A squad of servants would pitch their tents and prepare the campsite while they Think tanked each other. Uh, It was far from roughing it. Edison provided battery-powered lighting for the campsite, while Ford's personal chef prepared elaborate dishes like broiled lamb chops, grilled ham, and hot biscuits out of a custom-designed kitchen truck. Oh, isn't it fun
3: to rough it like we are?
2: (laughs) I just love being a vagabond. (laughs) At these vagabond meetings, the children and grandchildren of Ford and Firestone met And mingled. And years later, in 1948, Harvey Firestone's granddaughter Martha married Henry Ford's grandson William Clay Ford, pivoting the friendship into family. And that only went on to solidify their business dealings, where Firestone supplied a majority of the tires for new Ford vehicles. In one excursion, one of the heavier trucks got stuck in the mud. A local mechanic came out to help, and the vagabonds' guide started making introductions. He introduced Henry Ford as the man who invented the car he was working on, and Firestone as the man who invented the tires. Then Edison as the man who invented the light bulb, and finally, the president of the United States, Warren G. Harding. The mechanic took a look at the group and then pointed at Burroughs, who sported a long gray beard. And I suppose you're going to tell me that this is Santa Claus. I don't believe that. I don't believe that story at all. I think that's (laughs) something that they made up because they thought that's
1: what humans want to (laughs) hear.
3: That's probably something that Burroughs wrote. Uh Uh-huh.
1: From family connections to market dominance, Ford and Firestone led automotive breakthroughs in racing and passenger cars. Firestone developed racing tires for a car prepared by Henry Ford and given to Barney Oldfield, a famous motorcycle racer. He won the race by a full half mile and launched Ford and himself into racing fame. Damn. Ford expanded quickly and Firestone followed. The two CEOs opened factories in Southern California together. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, Ford ruled the market with the best-selling Thunderbird and Mustang. Like most of Ford vehicles, they were equipped with specially designed Firestone tires, as they had been since 1906. After 100 years of innovation, the Murtagh and Riggs of the automotive industry continued to be car community darlings until the 1980s, when quality control took an absolute nosedive. Exhibit A of the shocking corporate misconduct was the Ford Explorer. The Ford Explorer rolled off the factory lines in March of 1990. The Explorer had some issues right from the start. It had a lot of weight in the cabin area, especially in the roof, which raised the center of gravity. This made the new SUV super roll happy and prone to swaying during sharp turns, especially because it sported leaf springs that didn't do a lot to reduce body roll. All of this made the likelihood of a crash, and especially a crash involving injuries or fatalities, way more likely than one of Ford's other vehicles like the Ranger.
2: I mean, I, I remember like as a kid, like, that's the thing that people said about SUVs. Yeah, like, so that they like, roll
1: over. Oh, they roll over. During pre-production tests, the Explorer flipped easily, and Ford engineers came up with three suggestions to stop the crashes. First, shorten the springs and drop the truck half an inch in the front and a full inch in the back. Get that Carolina squat. Yeah, hey. Uh, Second, lower the tire pressure to induce a more car like ride. You know, the tires are going to give a little bit more uh, leeway, going to help that give. A little give, that's right. And third, widen the wheelbase by two inches. This would come at an extreme cost in redesigns and assembly line restructuring, but it would solve the problem. After looking long and hard at the profitability charts, Ford went with options A and B, lowering the truck and, you know, letting a little bit of air out of the tires. They reduced the pressure in the tires from the standard 35 PSI to a surprisingly low 26.
3: That is really low.
1: The track width remained the same to save cash. But the real cost came from the lack of tire pressure. The 9 PSI reduction drastically increased tire temperature, which ultimately led to tire failures. Whoa. Ford's BFF Firestone was complicit. They signed off on the move and warrantied the tires for more than a decade at the lower tire pressure.
3: There was a 10-year warranty on these tires?
1: No, no, no. I think it's... They warrantied them at that PSI for 10 more years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, the results were immediately noticeable. The first-generation Explorer had awful fuel economy easily one of the worst among all SUVs, and Ford faced serious criticism for it. So for the second gen Explorer, Ford responded by reducing the weight of the material in the roof.
3: They seem to be doing like the worst remedies to like remedies that don't make any sense. Like
1: Yeah. In this new lighter roof, increased fuel economy, but uh, collapsed more easily if the car was to roll over, increasing injuries to passengers. At the same time, Engineers replaced the twin i beam suspension with much lighter short-arm and long-arm suspensions, but they didn't bother to lower the position of the heavy engine, which raised the truck's center of gravity even higher. It was a perfect storm of conditions to flip an SUV and crush the passengers within. It wasn't until 2002, after hundreds of deaths and almost a thousand injuries, that Ford finally relented and redesigned the Explorer. They inflated the tires to a more reasonable 30 psi, widened the vehicle by two and a half inches, lowered the ride height, and installed an independent rear suspension that included electronic stability control, all of which worked to keep the truck shiny side up. Ford's crappy money-saving design wasn't the only reason for the crashes, though. Those Firestone tires that were traditionally mounted to Ford vehicles had their own issues emerging. Firestone was having labor disputes, and quality control issues at a factory in decatur illinois and this was leading to garbage tires being shipped to ford's assembly lines on wednesday
2: august 9th 2000 bridgestone firestone and ford jointly announced that firestone would recall more than 14 million tires that contained a safety related defect the atx ATX-2 and Wilderness AT tires were at the heart of the issue. These were tires produced and placed on Explorers, F-150s, Rangers, Mazda B-Series, and Mazda Navajos between 1991 and 2000, but also mounted to wheels of all kinds of other trucks as replacements. Investigators from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration began running their own tests on tires coming out of the Decatur plant. After wrecking a bunch of explorers and peeling apart tires, they found five major issues that led to their failure. Hmm. Tire age, the tire Mm -hmm. operating temperature, Mm -hmm. the overall tire design, as well as labor and management problems in Bridgestone Firestone at the Decatur, Illinois factory itself. Basically, everything surrounding (laughs) tires was wrong. Anything to do with a
3: tire... is not good here. They accidentally <laughs> made it out of plastic.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. But like tire age, like tire age for every car is a thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it just aged quicker because of all
2: the, yeah, maybe it like, yeah, decompose quicker. Yeah. Overall design is the one that really kind of stinks. Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: oh,
2: oh, just overall the design is
1: dangerous. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now.
2: Uh, The rubber begins to crack under stress and can separate from the belts. Most of this separation happens after three years of use, but the tires that were later recalled by Firestone started to fail only after one year on the road. Oh, man. But these same tires that were produced by plants in other cities didn't fail as quickly. Hmm. Hotter tires fail faster, and that's why racing tires are rated differently and why they rate tires for different speeds. A few different Factors like vehicle load and outside air temperature cause tires to heat up Mm -hmm. uh, more or less quickly.
1: And you want them to heat up. Uh, You want them to get a little stick. Yeah, that's how they they get sticky. Exactly, James. You want your meat sticky. You don't want cold tires.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we like sticky meats over here. Hotter tires fail faster, and that's why racing tires are rated differently and why they rate tires uh, for different speeds. A few different factors like vehicle load and outside air temperature cause tires to heat up quickly. The Explorer was both heavier and running, you know, as we've talked about before, a lower PSI. I think a lower PSI than probably they were designed to run. Absolutely. Um, and if you look at where the majority of tire failures happened, they were all in southern states. Oh, hot. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. The thickness and placement of belts and rubber in Firestone's recalled tires were also controversial. In 1998, the design of the tires wasn't even up to Firestone's own minimum standards, and they waited until failure started happening to change oh those standards.
1: What is happening?
2: Uh, one example. That's is like that when a-
3: you're playing when you're playing when you're in Among Us and you're like, oh, I found this body like, oh, let's talk about it. But really, like you reported your own murder. Oh, we all noticed this
2: body at the same time. That's crazy.
1: We're all trying to figure out who did this.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One example in particular pertains to the Wilderness AT tires. A strip of rubber placed between the two steel belts was thinner than Firestone's minimum specification at the time. Other parts of the tire were similarly not up to par according to their own standards that they were supposed to be following. Hey, how does that even happen, man? This happens at such scale, too. You know yeah, what I mean? That's a scary like It's not part, like they're making two sets of tires. Like they're making thousands and yeah.
1: thousands of these tires. I think what's so scary to me is like how like, or what I'm having trouble understanding is like, how, how does your manufacturing process even let you produce products that are even less than the minimum standard, you know? Mm-hmm. Like how does that happen? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Then there were the labor issues. In depositions leading up to the trial, workers testified that quality control issues at the Decatur plant most likely led to manufacturing defective tires. One witness, Daryl Batson, who had worked at the Firestone plant for 30 years, told lawyers that he had a quota to inspect 100 tires per hour, which basically made it impossible for him to properly scrutinize the quality of the tires. Some inspectors added they had to sign off on tires they didn't even inspect. Oh, boy. Batson said that even though he got a steep discount, he would never personally buy Firestone tires after 1992. They were simply too dangerous.
3: Not wow. a good sign. Definitely not.
1: Workers talked about all sorts of shenanigans going down on the factory floor as well. For example, they would roll unvulcanized tires across the ground where, where dirt would stick to them and wind up inside the completed tires. Workers would use an awl to puncture bubbles in tires, and they used solvents on tire adhesives that had lost their tack from sitting too long in the humid factory. It should be obvious, but none of this is standard procedure for making a quality tire. Yoichiro Kaizaki, CEO and president of Bridgestone until 2001, stated that there were two different standards for quality control within Bridgestone. Any Bridgestone problem would get a swift reaction from management, and a team would rush to the site to fix the issue. But if it happened in the US, it wouldn't be addressed because they didn't want to disturb the American culture in place. What? That's called good management.
2: I like that this Japanese CEO thinks American culture is just being lazy and (laughs) (laughs) Like yeah, this is just how they are.
1: When Bridgestone bought Firestone in 1988, it's unclear if they were aware of the company's amount of debt, understood how run down the facilities were, and just how deep that American culture truly ran inside the factory. After a close inspection of the books, Bridgestone told Firestone it was time to get rid of some workers. But instead, they cut costs everywhere else, including quality control, while forcing workers to renegotiate their contracts at reduced pay and benefits. God, that's not good. The workers refused the new terms. The union members instead grabbed the pickets and started an old-fashioned strike. Firestone responded by hiring 2,300 new workers at a 30% pay cut. After a few months, the union workers crossed the picket line, and by May 1995, the Decatur plant was made up of 371 permanent workers and more than 1,000 scabs. It took another year and a half of negotiations to get all the workers back on the line. The weeks that the union workers spent on strike were tragically, but also unsurprisingly, also the period when some of the worst quality tires with the highest failure rate were manufactured in the plant. Saw that coming. Yeah, couldn't have predicted that.
2: The combination of poorly made tires and poorly engineered explorers combined to form an actual death trap. Worse still everyone knew about it except the actual people who were purchasing and driving said death traps all the way back to 1996, four years before the recall started, personal injury attorneys knew that the tread was the cause of the crashes. But because they're lawyers, they decided not to contact the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, They were worried that the NHTSA would hand down a ruling that would affect their client's payout. Oh, my God. 258 of the 271 recorded deaths took place after. Oh, my God. Those lawsuits. The majority of deaths happened after these lawyers failed to alert the proper authorities because it affected their paycheck ranking them up there alongside the penny pinchers at Ford and Firestone that kept the fatal crashes quiet. The state of Arizona started sounding the alarm the next year. Firestone responded by sending engineers to Arizona, who in an act of total corporate malfeasance that was sadly predictable, they determined the tires were being used in manners not fit for a normal passenger car and blamed the drivers for their own deaths after the tires failed. According to internal memos uncovered by Congress, this is also when Firestone started tracking those deaths internally. Can you imagine being the guy who has to do that? Like your boss walks into your office and he's like, hey, uh, our product is killing a lot of people. Uh, We don't want to get in trouble. So you got to start like reading the news and like probably talking to cops and coroners and stuff. And like you got to like for us, figure out how many people were killing and that guy's like i've been waiting for this opportunity (laughs) my entire life i didn't know that tracking
3: death could be a job in
2: this tire company
3: but lucky me here it is and that was steven
2: miller in 1998 insurance company researchers started pulling data for crashes and connecting the dots Then internationally, researchers found more irregularities. In Venezuela, 46 people died from the faulty tires. In Saudi Arabia, they began replacing Firestone tires at a deep discount in 1999. Then Firestone and Ford issued a very quiet recalls in the Middle East, Venezuela, Malaysia, and Thailand. But again, nobody bothered to call the folks at the NHTSA.
1: This is criminal, man.
2: It is literally criminal. (laughs) On February seventh, 2000, KHOU, a Houston TV station, ran a nine-minute story about high-speed Firestone tire failures and showed that when mounted to Explorers, they were responsible for 30 deaths. Video went as viral as videos uh, of, you know, in 2000 could go. And the station was overwhelmed with Explorer owners wanting more details on the ticking time bomb parked in their driveways. Clarence Ditlow Low. Uh executive director of the Center for Auto Safety, stated before the Senate Committee of Commerce, Science, and Transportation that emerging information shows that both Ford and Firestone had early knowledge of tread separation in Firestone tires fitted to Ford Explorer vehicles, but at no point informed the NHTSA of their findings. Firestone had way more data on the faulty tires because they were tracking warranty issues, but they didn't do anything about it and instead blamed the drivers for not knowing how to work a set of tires or properly drive a car. When Ford and the NHTSA started poking around, they'd first go to the consumer hotline run by the NHTSA, which wasn't getting calls because all of those greedy lawyers from before advised their clients not to report anything for fear of losing their money.
3: God, I hate these guys. Yeah. Also,
2: NHTSA is the worst acronym. Yeah. It's like, how do we make uh, an acronym that's harder to say than the actual thing?
3: I know. I feel <laughs> like National... Not, see, I can yeah. say that. National Highway Transit Security Authority? Safety.
2: Safety. Association Authority. Anyway. Like, put another vowel in there so we can call it NATSA. You know? National... Agency of safety yee <laughs> nasty. Uh, well, this all ended when the NHTSA brought the hammer down on Firestone. They opened an investigation on March 6, 2000 and five months later, Firestone recalled.
1: <sighs> are
2: you kidding me, man? <laughs> Finally recalled the ATX, the ATX two and all of their wilderness tires made at the aging Decatur plant. This is, didn't end the investigation like manufacturers had hoped. It was upgraded to an engineering analysis and the NHTSA broke out the crash test dummies and got to work to see just how deep this disaster went.
1: Ford and Firestone submitted their own takes on the problem, all while firmly passing the buck on to the other company. Firestone said it was the poorly engineered Explorer's fault, while Ford pointed at the shredded tires and how Goodyear tires weren't failing in the same way on Explorers. Publicly, Firestone issued a barrage of press releases and blamed Ford for lowering the tire pressure and building a flip-happy SUV. The former CEO of Firestone, John Lamp, argued that, quote, when a driver of a vehicle has something happened, such as a tread separation, they should be able to pull over, not roll over. In the days before Ford issued the recall, Lamp learned of the automaker's plan. Lamp angrily phoned Jack Nasser, CEO of Ford, from a meeting in Mexico and again during a plane change in Dallas, but the Ford CEO avoided his calls. Maybe Lamp
3: can shed some light on this issue.
1: Nice, Joe. Ford Vice President Carlos Matzerin finally returned Lamp's call, agreeing to a 7 a.m. meeting at Firestone headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee, where the two men debated over whether the federal data justified a new recall. Even before that meeting, a wary lamp had drafted a letter to Nasser terminating the historic partnership between Ford and Firestone. On August 9th, 2000, Firestone issued a recall covering six and a half million Firestone ATX tires and Wilderness AT tires manufactured 1991. I'm not going to read the tire size info. Uh, That's not relevant.
3: Well, you're no better than the Firestone Goons that tried to hold data back. All right. All right. What if someone's driving right, a 35-year-old P2 35 year old P23575R15?
1: That's a good point. That's a thick tire. <laughs> yeah, that is a big a 75 thick profile on a 15 inch. That's a thick sidewall.
2: It's a, it's a lot of sidewall. Um, yeah.
1: Then on August 21st, 2000, Ford halted production at three truck assembly plants so that 70,000 tires could be diverted towards the recall effort. Firestone's uh, 235-75 15-inch tires became scarce and Ford authorized dealers to install non-Firestone tires. 14 million tires were recalled, an effort that would cost both companies billions of dollars. Quote, nationally, it's not clear how many people were killed in crashes linked to the recalled tires, said Ray Tyson, then a spokesman for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA. That's largely because the government stopped counting deaths related to the recalled Firestones in 2001.
3: Did you see how Nolan stared you in the eyes and said that <laughs> NHTSA so confidently, James?
2: You know what I don't like? I don't N- like uh Nolan's figurative adolescence where he's like defying his mentor uh <laughs> who did so much for him and spent so much time to get him to this place
1: that he should be very proud of. I don't like that. I don't like this. Hey James, (laughs) check this out. NHTSA.
3: Oh my God, you guys, we've already had the loss of friendship between Firestone and Ford.
2: Can you guys just squash this beef already? Next time I see you, Nolan, Uh I'm gonna choke you out. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were gonna say I'm
3: in a 69 (laughs)
2: We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
1: A side note, if you remember back to our intro, Michael Enriquez's tire was actually covered by this recall and should have been removed from the truck. But even after numerous trips to Sears to have the vehicle serviced, the original spare tire bolted underneath the SUV was never noticed.
2: Oh, it was a spare.
1: It was, that's why it was a spare. Dang.
2: Ford and Firestone's woes weren't done yet. As the scandal became public and news of the cover-up started populating headlines, the politicians started sniffing around and decided it was time for hearings. So they hauled Bridgestone Firestone CEO Masatoshi Ono and his counterpart at Ford, Jacques Nasser, to Capitol Hill to answer for the deaths of hundreds of Americans. It was found that a shocking 62% of accidents stemmed from tires manufactured directly at the Decatur, Illinois plant. At the hearings, both Ford and Firestone CEOs showed up as their sacrificial lambs for the 250 plus deaths employing the language of carefully controlled and high stakes damage control. Ono, no, Firestone CEO was direct. He said, quote, I come before you to apologize to you. The American people, and especially to the families who have lost loved ones in these terrible rollover accidents. I also come to accept full and personal responsibility. Wow. Jack Nasser was a tough, outspoken Australian with a reputation for ruthlessly cutting costs. He'd even been given a nickname, Jack the Knife. With his blunt, talking manner, Nasser may not have been the obvious choice to appear in front of a room full of hunting congressmen. But by tossing Nasser to the wolves, Ford spared the reputation of the man whose name appeared on the door William Clay Ford Jr., the 43 year old chairman of the company and great grandson of both Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone. Nasser declared that we can't let this go on <laughs> and pledged to develop an industry wide early warning system for safety problems and to share information henceforth with government agencies globally. From now on, when we know it, so will the world," he declared. But the two executives failed to satisfy the politicians who decided an example needed to be made.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. I would like an example to be made. Somebody at some point, please. Thank you.
2: One senator (laughs) said that the Firestone and Ford explanations strain credulity. Many lawmakers said they have concluded. The nation's warning system for alerting consumers to auto safety problems, which hinges on cooperation between manufacturers and federal regulators, was broken and in need of an overhaul. He's gaslighting. He's basically like, Yeah, I know, but like, really? <laughs> if you think about it, the system is yeah, like.
1: It's systematic. The system systematic. is. Huh. It's the system's fault that we didn't alert the system.
2: Listen, you know? I know that I. Like, we killed people, okay? I know, but it's really, if you think about it, it's like all of our faults
1: as society. we're all complicit. Masatoshi Ono, a true company man who had started on the Bridgestone factory floor in 1959, was forced to resign. He was replaced by John Lamp, an American who started his career changing tires in a Cincinnati Firestone shop in 1973. His first act was to fire Ford as a customer severing the 100-year history between Firestone and Ford right before Ford's centennial celebration.
3: I thought they had already done that at, over at Ford. So this was like more of just a ceremonial thing of Yeah, being like, I think so. washing my hands of you Ford.
1: Yeah. Lamp very publicly blamed Ford for the fatal rollovers being experienced by the Explorer and demanded that the NHTSA investigate the vehicle. He shifted marketing attention to Firestone's successful business dealings with GM and Honda, and in two years, he turned a $1.67 billion loss into an $83 million profit, becoming a hero to Firestone's parent company, Bridgestone, who had been pretty close to cutting the brand loose after the name had become synonymous with fatal traffic accidents. Another result of the recall was that Firestone's Decatur plant was closed in December of 2001, with all 1,500 employees abruptly laid off. Firestone cited a decline in consumer demand for Firestone tires and the age of the Decatur plant as reasons for closing that facility, but it was clear that the plant was a chapter of the company's history that they wanted to close for good. The breakup was more than just business for Ford Chairman William Clay Ford Jr. As the son of Martha Firestone and William Clay Ford, grandson of Harvey S. Firestone Jr. and Edsel Ford, and great-grandson of Harvey S. Firestone Sr. and Henry Ford, the corporate divorce between the companies was also personal. Quote, I grew up with Firestone as part of my family, Mr. Ford said in response to a question during a May 22nd press conference following Ford's announcement to recall millions of Firestone Wilderness AT tires. The breakup is tough, he explained, because Firestone is a great American name and, quote, it's my family's name and my mother's name, certainly.
2: So what? Yeah. <laughs> like, change your name. Change the name.
1: When Henry and Harvey shook hands over 120 years ago, they couldn't have imagined the billions of dollars that handshake would one day represent. The scandal between their two companies serves as a lesson to anyone who becomes complacent in a relationship, be it one of business or one of family. Years of history or decades or even a century mean nothing if the values that once created a bond are forgotten.
3: You know, this reminds me of The Sopranos, uh, which I've been... (laughs) Watching a lot of lately. Why? Because there's so much freaking gabagool going on. There's a lot of gabagool being exchanged. But also, you know, these friendships and family, like, as soon as they say, like, they can say no snitching a million times. But as soon as they're, like, threatened with 50 years in prison, they're, they flip like nothing.
1: I think there's, um, there's something that I'm thinking about is, like, companies are, like, in this country become like part of our national canon you know like because sometimes just by virtue of being around for a long time and that's almost where that notion of like too big to fail comes from as well like this is these are like two two legendary to fail companies basically Mm -hmm. and i think if like a company messes up in that big of a way like failing to tell regulators about this problem that they've notified other countries about you know Mm -hmm. like why do they deserve that leeway you know why was there not more action taken
3: yeah it's like your legacy can only go so far like when you're complicit in killing hundreds of people mm-hmm. and and you actively held back information that could have saved more people's lives mm-hmm. you don't get any sympathy from me just because you're a legacy company like that doesn't mean anything
1: um yeah so this was just a perfect storm of uh of one a bad design and two a not so great tire coming together.
3: Yeah, no one wanted to take responsibility for it. People died, and it destroyed, you know, a corporate handshake
1: and a lot of people's lives. Yeah.
2: Fun fact and little side uh, aside to this story: uh, Lamp, when he left, um, got a job with Pixar as their logo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that's a good place to end. Thank you, James, <laughs> for that great joke. Um, thank you for listening to Pass Gas. As always, if you think you have a friend that will enjoy the show, let them know about it. Uh, that's how we grow the show. Um, I've been Nolan Sykes, joined by my co-host, Joe Weber. Follow him at Joe G. Weber. Follow James at James Pumphrey. They're very funny guys, and they post cool pictures of their dogs, and I support that. Thank you very much to our producer, uh, Thomas. And our other producer editor, Bridget, as always, thanks. Be kind. I love you. Keep it June. And we'll see you next time.